0: For New York City FC, the first leg of preseason complete. The second leg at the Coachella Invitational in California coming up beginning next week. And later in our Kicking It Around segment, the first of a four-part series, Getting to Know Your Commentators on NYCFC Views.
1: Turn up your volume volume
2: because you're about to listen to
1: The Sick Podcast. Podcast.
2: NYCFC Views.
0: Collins approaches the shot and New York City wins the first MLS Cup on their first try. And they're going
2: crazy. New York City is el campeón in major league soccer, the sickest New York City FC podcast. It's going to
1: be sick.
2: Welcome back, everybody.
0: I'm Glenn Crooks, along with Roberto Abramowitz. And then later, Roberto, you know, I think uh, this is one thing I threatened to do last year, but let's do it this year now that we've got the sick podcast. NYCFC views. Uh, we're going to feature each of the four commentators that do the radio coverage for New York City FC. You do it. I do it. Ariel Hudas works with you, and Maddie Lawrence is going to kick us off today. My broadcast partner. And the the thing I've told you all along, uh, and, and I've said to all four of you. I mean, you each have such fascinating stories, and I think a lot of the people that listen to us. And hear from us on Twitter when we are, are talking about the club. Know uh, very little about us. So I think it would be. Uh, I'm. I'm looking forward to learning more about all of you too. So uh, that'll be a little bit later
2: on. And we're going to learn about you as well. You. You get the spotlight shine on on, on yourself too. So that's pretty good.
0: Yeah, you're going to be doing the interviewing of me. So uh, make sure you prepare. I, I don't want any winging yeah, It's going to be
2: you. the best three minute interview ever. I
1: promise <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs>
0: All right, well, New York City, uh, uh, we're going to get to Maddie a little bit uh, later on, uh, completed their second scrimmage. Uh, The uh, Philadelphia Union, the opponent, uh, we don't know really much about it except for the final score. It was 1-0 in favor of City at the half. We don't know who scored the goal, and that was not disclosed. And then Philadelphia scored three times in the second half, so 3-1 the final. Uh, Nick Cushing did about a 27 second post game thing where he said a lot of young players came in uh, for the second half, but we don't, we don't know any specifics. We don't know who started. Uh, the one thing I remember about the, the, the short bit of highlights that they did show. So there was a highlight package, but none of the goals were shown. So we just don't know. But um, that uh, Maximo Carrizo got the ball in the midfield, passed it out wide left, nice, firm, accurate pass to Malachi Jones, the number one draft pick who recently signed. And he got a pretty good shot on goal. I think Andre Blake had to come up with a save there. So uh, that's all I could take away, Roberto. I don't know if you got if you gleaned anything else from anybody.
2: No, no. Look, the team doesn't want us to know what happened, and you know, fine. I'm not going to talk about it then. They, as far as we know, according to the Philadelphia Union, they lost. You know, Philadelphia won three to one. That's all I know. And uh, they don't want us to talk about it. Not talking about it. I mean, well, there's the- nothing to say. The Barcelona game game anyway, I'm not going to gleam anything out of a preseason game, any preseason game for that matter. I'm not gleaming it. You're not uh, unless you find some amazing individual performance from some guy who you didn't know about or had not gotten a chance. It is what it is. And I'm not going crazy over it. You know, we'll we'll start. uh, What is it, February 24th? Then then we'll figure stuff out. Actually, in Coachella, Coachella, those games are on TV. So, you know, those will glean a little bit more.
0: Yeah, these first two scrimmages were closed door. Barcelona uh, from uh, Guayaquil, Ecuador. Uh, uh, that was a 1-0 defeat. And then uh, the 3-1 loss. And uh, the thing I'll, you know, when I get out to Coachella next week, you know, I'll ask about the goals and see if we can, you know, get any information on that. But uh, but more so is, yeah, the club announced earlier this. The, I just
2: the, don't get it, Glenn. I mean, well, I seriously don't get it. I mean, what, what are you hiding? I mean Philadelphia saw everything you did but that's, what, are you, what are you hiding well that's I what I get well, it. I mean it's not only NYC there's a lot of teams that do the same thing and I just don't get it it's a preseason game it's a chance to talk about the team yeah, but to, we to did promote it. the team and you know I, to get it
3: you know I, to get people I excited I understand
0: but we scrim in college even we would scrimmage teams either preseason or in the spring and there are times when I'd have agreements with the uh, opponent not to share because there's all kinds of sharing of, of film okay. and we would have this agreement not to share the film. It was just the okay. two, it was just the two teams getting together uh, and, and we're doing whatever we're trying to do, especially in the preseason. And, uh, and then that becomes,
2: it was in essence, closed door. Let, let me ask you a question from reporter to coach. Okay. What, what affected you? Now your season runs what August to uh, December, right? Okay, college. College season runs yeah. August to December. Yeah, What did you do in the preseason, okay, in July and beginning of August, okay, that somewhere in the middle of late October, beginning of November, you were able to do that surprise the opposition, and had you not done that in preseason and hid it from everybody, that wouldn't have resulted.
0: Well, the first thing I think of is set pieces because if you're playing an opponent that you're not going to see during uh, the regular year on the collegiate level, then you, you, and what you do is you take the set pieces maybe consecutive times, you know, that's, it's a controlled scrimmage too. So you can do things like that. I have no idea if either of these first two scrimmages were of the control variety where maybe you could have multiple opportunities to do things just to, just to train from it. I don't, pr- probably not. But uh, that, those are the kinds of things uh, that uh, might. And then, you know, the emergence of uh, freshmen. And in the case of a professional team, it's, it's the young players that maybe some of the opponents don't know as much about. Look, I'm not I, – I, I, don't, I don't agree with closed door. Not, I think I told you last week, I, my, if, if teams want to do a closed door scrimmage, give them one. Give them one in the preseason. You know, and this could come from a mandate from MLS – and then the rest of them have to be streamed or talked about, you know. So that because the supporters are uh, the ones that are mightily interested in this, I'm sure it's very good news uh, that they'll be able to uh, see these Coachella games. And I'm I'm pretty happy to say that I'm going to be uh, doing the color commentary on all three of those games. That was ben- really
2: cool. And but see, like uh, I don't like my thing, my, my thing is okay, and this is from a layman's perspective because I have no coaching background or or real playing background. Okay. So, from a layman's perspective of what advantage you can gain from this, I look at other sports, okay, and I understand that you have closed practices and you have closed practices every single week, and you open it up one day for media to to see what's going on, to do interviews, and the rest of the time everything's closed except for the first fifteen minutes. But look, nobody shows up anyway for that, okay? So everything else is closed, and I get that. All right, I get that. I don't fully agree with it, but fine, I get it. Um. In these practices, I mean, there's no other sport that does this, okay? There's no other sport. Spring training is open. They sell tickets to every single game. The NFL preseason, although it's been shortened, is open. NHL, NBA preseason, it's open. I mean, it's, I, I don't get the, the, the secrecy of this. Like, all of a sudden, they're going to do something that reinvents soccer that is going to give them a huge advantage just as they're going into the playoffs or about to try all to right. advance to the playoffs. Well, let's, I don't get let's, it. Ask, let's
0: ask Nick directly at some point this year, you know, maybe early on. In, uh, I will.
2: But... I will because I, I, I want to know what, what, what advantage they can glean because I don't. So it, maybe it's just my own stupidity, and I don't understand it, and it's me. It, it's because so they, you know, it, it's a it's a big deal.
0: Maybe uh, maybe Matty Lawrence can uh, can shed some light on it when we when we bring him in a little bit later. We'll right, interrogate so, him. So uh, two loss, two matches played, two losses. It's just the preseason, and I uh, remember your comment from a week ago about the fact that you don't care about results in preseason. And I understand what you were saying, and I kind of countered that by saying. Maybe early on, but as it progresses, and and when you get out to Coachella near the end of those, games, like the third game against the Galaxy, and then a closed door against uh, Austin FC on February seventeenth, you know, I think you're, I think results could be important. So I brought this up at the last presser, Nick Cushing and Keaton Parks. So okay. I talked about I talked about learning how to win, and uh, uh, honestly, Nick, his first comment to me was like. Well, I disagree that we need to learn to win because of how the end of the season went. Uh, they finished the season uh, with a victory against Chicago at City Field. We know that. It wasn't enough to get them into the playoffs. And then uh, Keaton Parks was also asked the same question. So let's run that and then uh, get your comments, Roberto.
1: Clear plan of this preseason. One of the team that we want to be and two of how we're going to get there. And I think one of the challenges of not making playoffs is the amount of time that you have off from November right the way through until a preseason that starts in the second week of January. Um, so I think, I think one of the main things for us is this, is this camp was about getting the physical base in. It's about making sure if we want to be a more aggressive team with the ball and without the ball, that we have to really stress the physical side of each individual's game and, and give us the best chance to go to Coachella and play a games programme where we can start to hone the tactical side and real hone the ideas. And and as we go closer, you know, through these games, of course, winning becomes something that is um, a huge desire of ours because, as you know yourself, confidence and momentum and just trying to gain some real success out of the concepts of how you want your team to play. Of course, winning is important to us. Uh,
3: I do, yes. Uh,
2: I think in the past, our preseasons have been good, have been bad. Uh, We've we've won, we've lost, but um, I think it would be good to carry some momentum out of preseason into the season um, and just get everybody on the same page that we're going out to win every game. This isn't, uh, we're not still warming up as the start of the season takes off, and I think it'll be good for us to to get in that mindset of just finishing games, winning games, whatever it takes, Um, and so yeah, hopefully we can bring that out of everybody by the end of this preseason so that we're ready to go day one.
0: So I think Keaton, more so than Nick, put an emphasis on you know, really winning these games and winning them in a way that probably games were lost last year. But just before you comment, Roberto, nine wins total the season ago. That is the fewest in franchise history, including the expansion season when uh, it was 10 wins. And uh, last year, the only season other than 2015 where uh, uh, where New York City missed the playoffs. Only one of those nine wins was on the road. Only Toronto had a worse road record or win road record now we could look at it also over the last five matches it was three wins one of those wins against toronto which played like a mid-level usl championship game that 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 game was just at red bull arena was it was a pitiful for poor and so but you, you still soundly beat them which is what you're supposed to do so they got that done uh beat um chicago at home to end of season the most impressive win in that run Roberto, you might remember is orlando that was at city field two nil that was a very uh good game but a must win at dc united second to last uh, game of the season and um one of the poorer performances you know down that last third of the season a two nil loss so that's kind of why i brought it up because i don't know it's uh i see what parks is saying and he's one of the leaders so i think it's it's going to be pretty important that they they get some results here
2: i think that it really depends on the team okay so if i want to put a little caveat to what i said it really depends on the team if you have a, a young team that you're putting together that maybe doesn't have the right mentality then maybe you have to emphasize that a little bit so they get used to winning and and they can show but a veteran team in new york city although it's sort of young it, it, it was one of the youngest teams last year it's still a veteran team in many ways and um Look, I I think you look more for winning individual battles. uh, Who's going to be your left back? Who is going to be, you know, whatever position that you think that, you know, needs shoring up? And I I think that winds up being more important. And, you know, you can look at the NFL, and I don't have the stats right in front of me, and, and I'm sure that it's littered with teams that win in the preseason and do absolutely nothing during the regular season and vice versa. So I don't think it's that important to win. Maybe in some individual cases, it might be a little bit more than in most. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is finding out who you really have individually, who are the players that are going to help you. What are the tactics that are going to help you? And maybe you don't deploy them throughout the, you know, entirely throughout a game because you want to try different tactics. This is when you get to experiment, right? So you want to try well, different a, tactics. Great... You want to see which ones work, which ones don't, and which well, ones you can yeah. adjust.
0: But that's if you, if you listen back to what Nick said, he said these early stages, it's really getting the uh, physical together and then the, uh, the game method together and then trying to now put it together at Coachella where it's looking uh, the way you want it. And that's why, to me, it's a gradual process. I think they've got a great plan for preseason. I don't think uh, the results in these first two games is that vital. I don't think the result against San Jose on February 7th is going to be vital. But then Portland... And then the L.A. Galaxy as you're moving closer almost a week uh, prior to the season. I, I just think um, – and you need to be scoring some goals too. And we're uh, – uh, there's uh, uh, apparently a new assistant coach on the way. We're going to get to that uh, in just a moment. Again, well,
2: let me just put one more thing, okay? So, like, I've been wa- watching the premiership, and I'm starting to see a lot of teams using a new system, which is three-three-two-two. right. And so maybe one of those Coachella games, as you're putting your team together, maybe that's something that you try for a half just to see how the team does it, right? You Obviously, you practice it and all that, but then you install it in a half because you want to see how it actually works out against another team. And so that's an opportunity to do that because you're not going to do that game one starting in Charlotte on uh, February 24th. That, to me, is more important.
0: I have a. Uh, that's funny. Last night, I, I I got up in the middle of the night. I couldn't sleep. You know, that happens every now and then. And I I started thinking. I I, I put out a a, a lineup with uh, with a shape, and it's a three back shape. All right. I wish I could. I, if I had the board here, I'm gonna bring that thing out. Maybe it's at Coachella. Maybe when I get back. And but it's three at the back. You're gonna be then- the soccer
2: Katie Porter.
0: Well, see, yeah. Well, I don't think I won't have any quips like she does. I don't think she's brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) So I thought you know, I'm. I'm Everything I'm thinking about is Sands, Parks, and Perea on the field at the same time. So how do you set up with those three on the field at the same time? You could leave Sands in the hole and play twin eights with Parks and Perea. You can do that. Uh, but where does that leave Santi uh, Rodriguez? Now, is he on the left and does that eliminate someone else? I came up with this three put Kevin uh, O'Toole on the left and make him, you know, he's a wing back, but he's maybe a little bit more defensive. Julian Fernandez on the right as a wing and keep his heels on the opposite touchline. Get him the ball in 1v1 situations. And then you've got so the shape is 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 well not really similar to the 3222 two, two, but it's really a 343 three, where you have Rodriguez kind of connecting with Monsef Bakrar up there but you've got the, I, I think that the the one thing I'd like to see more of this year is that they isolate the guys that need to be isolated. We saw what Gabby Pereira could do when he had room and Julian Fernandez is in that kind of same mold I think when he's isolated. What about Magno? Do you have him in your starting eleven? Not at the moment, but I don't know how preseason's going. I mean, I haven't, you know, I haven't seen a thing. We haven't seen.
2: So, yeah, exactly. so exactly
0: we haven't seen anything. It's hard to say. But I'm I'm thinking, you know, Sands can fall into the back line. Those you got Tavon Gray and Burke Reese are right and left as central backs, but they they can step into those gaps in front of uh in front of the wide areas. And I, I really I really was going through it pretty uh Pretty carefully, but also, you know, I can have fun with it because, you know, it's not my team. And uh, if it doesn't work out, I I don't get, uh, you know, crucified for it.
2: No, that's uh, Nick's job. There hasn't been a a Crooks out uh, hashtag yet. Maybe Maddie would start one. I don't know.
0: Maybe maybe it'll start after that uh, that system (laughs) and and that personnel. I don't know. Hey, player news. But before – one CF Montreal bit of player news – Joseph right. Martinez, I don't think this is uh, this has been officially announced, but Joseph Martinez, according to reports, is going to go to CF Montreal. So that's pretty
2: interesting. It, it is. I mean, the thing is, uh, what version of Joseph Martinez are we going to see? Because, well, I mean, the, the one at the beginning of the season with Inter Miami seemed to be slow and out of step, a little bit better once Messi got there. But, hell, Messi could make even you a good player. So uh, we'll see how that works out. But uh, Montreal seems to be trying to improve a lot uh, after a bad season last year, um, so we'll see what happens uh, with them. All right. So uh, New York City player news: ha- Hannes Wolf trying to. Uh, he's still
0: not here in the country, so there's some question as to uh, whether he'll arrive in Coachella in time to play games. And of course, that's a that's a visa issue. Uh, I went on his Instagram since, you know, I, it seems like everybody gets information from these players on Instagram. So I thought, all right, let me go on there. Let's see what he's talking about. So he, he didn't have anything up there other than pictures, but I went through all his pictures over the last, I don't know, a couple of years, and there must be 50 of them, him him playing with a ball at his feet. And only twice did I see him using his right foot. So this guy is dominant left. And it'll be interesting to see if he gets more time on the right as a wing or on the left. Uh, But first, they've got to get him in and get him acclimated and and all those things. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, There is uh, some very definitive information on Twitter from NYCFC source, who um, oftentimes is accurate. A 22-year-old center forward, Jovan Mijatovic, who, uh, according to the reports, is going to be signed by Manchester City and then... Go on loan to New York City until the summer, but he's a pretty good goal scorer. He has uh, four goals two assists in his last four matches played for Red Star Belgrade, and uh, they're second in the table um, in the uh, the Serbian uh, top league.
2: See, so, I don't get that. I, I th- th- that th- I don't get that. I can understand if well, someone that's
0: comes not in that's not like, that's coming from the club. Again, this is no, no,
2: no. I know this. This is from internet. This is we we're, we're we're speculating on speculation. So, um, I don't get the the point, okay, of the report that says it's six months. So, like from here to summer. Now, I understand it from Manchester City's point of view. I don't understand it from New York City's point of view. Uh, I can understand if a player comes in like Angelino did, all right, and in the summer transfer window and plays, you know, four months and then you know goes you know goes away. I, I get that. I don't get you bringing somebody in. For the beginning of the season, knowing that he's leaving mid-season, I I, I just don't get. that. About that too. I think that if he comes, he should at least stay the entire season, and uh, you know we'll, we'll we'll see if he does come what what winds up happening. But if it's just six months and he leaves in the summer transfer window, I absolutely don't get that. I I, I don't know what the I don't think there's a benefit really for New York City. I mean, unless he's scoring a sure. goal every day and it sets him up, you know, well, for the rest of the season, but. It, Does't make sense to me
0: no it's uh it's a bit awkward if it comes out that way, but let's say he scores you know eight goals by the summer, and New york city's in in good shape in the Eastern Conference, and then it also allows them, in addition to Monsef Bakar and Gabe Siegel, to acquire a striker uh in the transfer window, the secondary window, then you're almost replacing him and what Manchester City is thinking here is that New york City Working under the same sort of uh, method and system, you know, they're going to help prepare him for them. But he's he's a stri- he's a center forward. So he's right. not beating out Erling Holland, you know. I mean, so I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I,
2: I get that. Now, the other thing is, is that re- realistically, you know, even if they bring in a center forward in the summer transfer window, like they did last time, it takes time to acclimate to MLS. There are sure. very few players in the history of this league that go and hit the ground running and are seamlessly fit in and become major contributors. It normally takes time. It may even take, you know, the, the entire, you know, half of the season for somebody to contribute. And they start contributing the following season. It takes a while. So, you know, I wouldn't be getting my hopes up for something like that. But I'm, I'm just adding some context to, All right. to it. We have absolutely no idea. The club won't say anything. We actually haven't no, even no, asked we get, the club. Yeah, so, no confirmation. You know, Right. We've learned not to ask anymore. And
0: the 19-year-old <laughs> winger, uh, Augustine Ojeda, that's another one that seems uh, imminent. And by the way, Ojeda and mijatovic one of the reasons that you, – you, one of the things – and I talked about Instagram. They both just started following the official NYCFC Instagram Ooh. account. So that's one of Dead the reasons- giveaway.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so It's a dumb you know- deal. It's uh, unless, you know, unless they just all of a sudden saw, I don't know, an old clip of NYC and say hey, man, I'd like to follow them. All right. Let me
2: give you some info on him. Okay, so his valuation went up from like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars last July to about three million dollars now. Racing played yesterday against Tigre. They won three nothing. He wasn't in the starting lineup and he definitely wasn't on the bench either. He's 19 years old born July, uh, june 19th in 2004 he can play three positions but mostly he's played uh left wing he's played some right wing and uh some midfield so uh that's basically what he's done as far as his numbers are concerned including cup games and copa libertadores and all of this stuff he's played a total of 24 games he's got three goals two assists in 1154 minutes
0: all right, and he's also uh, I uh, did a screenshot of this from uh, Hudson River Blue. They took it from uh, one of these many analytics sites, but uh, this has to do with uh, his pace. This is a CIE as football obs U twenty in thirty six leagues. That's U twenty players in thirty six leagues, and uh, Ojeda is ranked ninth out of that uh, whole group of players. Interesting to see Caleb Wiley, Atlanta United, uh, number third overall. But this just kind of shows he's got a little pace too. In, in the event, uh, it does uh, culminate and and uh, come together that uh, the nineteen-year-old winger who grew up in Rosario uh, would, would come in. The other thing about the uh, Mijatovic uh, that I wanted to mention is that he played in the Champions League match against Manchester City for Belgrade, and it was a three-two loss at home for Belgrade. But uh, so he's he's had that kind of experience. As well, uh, MD Myers transferred from NYCFC two to the Charleston Battery of the USL Championship. That's uh, I think that's good news for for MD Myers. Uh, he's going to uh, a very very good coach, Ben Perman at, at Charleston. He's done a fantastic job. So uh, so MD Myers will develop there because he's he's got a good head coach, and that's a team that got to the championship game last year, lost to Phoenix Rising in in the USL Championship. So um, that that's some uh, you know he was a Golden Boot winner last year and in, in uh, what MLS Next Pro and now he's uh, now he's USL Championship and then Good for him
2: I hope he does well
0: yeah assistant coach position has been open since the departure of Kleberson and according to Joshua Cloak of the Athletic the Athletic rarely gets these things wrong uh, New York City is going to name Leon Hapgood I, I would imagine. Not many, if any, have uh, heard of him before, but uh, he's had great success in the Canadian Premier League with Cavalry uh, FC. They won the last two shields in the CPL, and he's been technical director and assistant coach uh, of that team during that period of time. Uh, Cloak described uh, that team, Cavalry, as creative and attacking oriented. So, uh,
2: so. All right, that's what we he, want to hear. He's
0: in, then uh, you know. I suppose that's going to be one of his uh, jobs to add to the creativity. Uh, League's cup opponents were announced this week. Roberto. Yes. did you see that? So what? Yes, do you I did. What do you think? It's FC Cincinnati. I'm and disappointed. He's... Queretaro. Is that the way you pronounce it? Right?
2: Queretaro. Queretaro. Yeah, that's okay. very good. I like. By the way, lovely city, about two hours away from Mexico City by car. Uh, it, it really is. They have a beautiful, they have a beautiful stadium that looks like Estadio Azteca, but only thirty-five thousand people. Uh, they rarely fill it up, sadly. Uh, this is a team that had all of its fans banned, uh, and they were almost, they were trying to force the owners to sell the team after their supporters uh, attacked Atlas supporters in Querétaro during one of their games. It was sort of like they were in social media you know, threatening each other. And then the Atlas supporters went and then the Caritaro supporters basically, you know, started a fight. It was horrific, just really terrible stuff there. Uh, and then the team was supposed to be forced to be sold and it was supposed to be moved. Never happened. And then late or mid-season in their last season, uh, they finally started allowing fans back in. They haven't been a very good team. Uh, so as far as that's concerned, I mean, New York City, you know, should uh beat them. I haven't really seen where they are. in the they're in the bottom uh, in the standings third, this year. They're bottom yeah. third
0: of the table. FC Cincinnati, and it's of note we're we're not going to Mexico because all the games are going to be played yeah uh, in North America again. So uh, right. So
2: New York City will visit FC Cincinnati and play at home against Queretaro, and then you know we'll see what happens after that. They've changed uh, the format a little bit this year, so it, where it's more regionalized. So the Mexican teams. Don't have to travel as much. Like Monterrey, I think traveled something like four thousand miles, which was outrageous. And I'm sure that it wound up affecting them as far as uh, you know how they perform. So it's a little bit more even. Although I still feel that they should seat everybody. And if a Mexican team is better seated than an American team, let's play the game in Mexico. I think eventually that actually helps. American teams going forward because they should learn how to play some of these games in hostile territory and trust me there's a difference between you know playing a a game let's say for New York City and Red Bull Arena which is probably the most hostile place that they'll face uh, versus playing a T you know playing in Estadio Azteca against America although Azteca now as of this this is the last game they'll play in Azteca until after the World Cup. Uh, it's being remodeled. So, America has one more game against Monterrey there, and then they close it down. You know, or playing in a place like Guadalajara or Monterrey or Tigres.
0: Understood. Is, you know, Speaking of the athletic, read the uh, story about Cade Cowell, who left the friendly confines of San Jose uh, to play at Chivas. And it's really great because he, he talks very much about uh, how uncomfortable it is, but how that will help with his development. One more thing before we get to Maddie, Roberto the away kit apparently has been revealed i don't this was like a
2: game or something that uh,
0: put it out but EA,
2: ea sports it used to be called fifa no longer is uh. and they uh accidentally seem to have leaked all the away uniforms so if it's accurate because we don't know if it's accurate or not yeah. but if it is that, that's a pretty smart looking uh uniform but what you can't see is like any of the details because normally it's just not a solid black it has normally it has a whole bunch of details and that make it you know that make it fun and but uh i like the fact that the crest is uh is blue and airways is blue i think that makes it cool uh we'll, we'll see if that's a real one and uh if it is uh it probably buying one
0: it looks like the mets to me but uh, I, I know it's
2: not so it's uh and as you well, know mets roberto do have a uniform I, yeah well you know they, they I share w- the new york city colors
0: I put this up here just for you and for supporters that might like that because I don't care about kits. Gosh, I don't care about kits. I just don't care about kits. But I care about Matty Lawrence, so let's go uh, kicking it around. Roberta, what do you say? All right, as I uh, teased at the top of the show, we're going to uh, feature each of the commentators that uh, bring you uh, the radio coverage here for New York City FC, and we're going to kick off this week uh, with uh, my co-commentator, the color analyst, Matthew Lawrence, otherwise known as Maddie Lawrence. Uh, I don't want to call him Shaggy. I don't think you like that nickname, do you?
3: <laughs> I don't know you seen the haircut I had on the top of my head when I was called Shaggy, yeah. It's, uh, I,
0: I, I did. I, it's we I We've got some pictures of you, but we don't have that one, but uh, yeah, that was... Uh, <laughs> Well, Maddie, great to see you again. And um, I think we're both uh, really um, interested in uh, look the number of times. It's almost embarrassing the number of times that we've gone out to dinner or sat in the pub. And I, I, I'm sure I haven't asked you all the questions that I probably should have about uh, your, your fascinating career. But let's just tell everybody, Fulham, Millwall, Crystal Palace, just, you know, and there were others as well. Started at Wycombe, I think. Over 650 professional matches uh, played in England. Uh, Millwall Player of the Year in 2001, a year that saw Millwall promoted to the top tier of England football. Finalist in the 2004 FA Cup against Manchester United. In all, Matty played 228 games at Millwall. Uh, came to the States to play at Hartwick College. He was uh, – uh, he's a Hall of Famer there. But that one time, that was a national power, Hartwick, which no longer has Division I soccer now. And uh, so that's just kind of a snapshot. And uh, Maddie, I guess you know, I I think we really want to start to get to know you by just talking about where you grew up and and how soccer hungry you were from the outset, based on your community and your family.
3: Um, I grew up in a, a town called Rushton, which is in Northamptonshire. Northamptonshire being. The county of Northamptonshire, which is the equivalent of a state, so the equivalent of your New Jersey or your New York state, obviously. Um, it was a a cobbling town. It was, you know, the uh, the capital, really, I guess, of Northamptonshire is Northampton town. They're called the Cobblers, so it's a shoemaking industry, or it was back then. Most of the or most of my school friends' parents worked in the shoe industry, worked in shoe factories. And obviously, as we grew older and things changed, the manufacturing of shoes no longer occurred in in England and, and it occurred elsewhere. So the factories all shut down probably when I was a teenager and many of my friends' parents lost their jobs or, or had to seek jobs elsewhere. Wow. So it become quite a desolate town. And my dad just forwarded me a BBC News article on our town where we used to live, Rushton. And that says it's been, um, there's been too much bad behavior going on there and a lot of social misbehavior, not in terms of murders or drug dealing per se, but in terms of littering, drinking in the streets, you know, urination in public. It's just got out of control in terms of there, there's nothing to do there. Like so many towns where they used to be, you know, manufacturing shoes or it used to be a cotton industry or it used to be mining, they're now desolate and with desolation comes destitution as well. And there's very, very few things to do. My mum my and dad got out of Rushton about the same time I did. I was 18 years old, as you said, when I came to the United States of America. My dad, my mum and dad left about a year later, and I've never been back since. And, and I don't mind saying that. I don't think I'm missing a great deal. I think it's a big shame for people who still remain there, obviously. But, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's not somewhere that I look on fondly in terms of, of now, but certainly growing up as a kid, it's why I learned to play football. It's where I smashed my ball against the, the wall time and time again out in front of my mum and dad's house. Quite often would probably miss and hit the next door neighbour's window as well. They got to know me too. Um, but yeah, that's just, just what I did. And that's what I did for so long. There was no such thing as under fives football or under sixes football. I didn't start playing really until I got to, to junior school when i was seven eight years old and then even then we weren't really allowed to join the team because we were so young but you know i think i got spe- special dispensation when i was seven or eight to join the team and kind of flourished from there we had a wonderful PE teacher uh phys ed teacher his name was alan cox and and he didn't teach me everything i know but he taught me everything i knew from the ages of of seven to 11, obviously with my my parents as well, of course, but he was the one true person who, who stands out at a very early age. Matt,
2: I have this fascination about how did you find out about the United States as far as an opportunity to be able to go to college? How did that whole thing start? Because it's not exactly a very well-known path for English soccer players to come to the United States. So how did that work out or what was the first time that you heard about college soccer in the US and you developed an interest and then somehow were able to, to make it happen and come over here?
3: Look, so I was graduating from high school um, sort of in the late eighties, early nineties. And obviously we graduate from high school at 16, not at 18. So then we have another two years of college before you guys do so we have up to 16 is high school and 16 to 18 is college where we do something called a levels which is separate most people leave school a lot of people leave school at 16 or they could back then anyway it's changed since so in that 16 to 18 year old age range i didn't get picked up by a professional club i was very small in stature and in in terms of in the nineteen back end of the 1980s that's a big problem probably still a, a too big a problem in in england right now because we always look towards physicality a little bit too much and certainly i got bypassed so i went to school and or went to college carried on my full-time education and when i was there i became very aware that maybe smarter kids were coming to america kids who hadn't quite made the profe- uh, progression to the professional game would come over to the states for and let's be honest for for a free education if you were good you came over and you got a full scholarship, hopefully at a Division One school. If not, a Division Two or Division Three, obviously, or a junior college. And I did become aware of that. And we did actually have a, a booklet that you could send it, or I could send, I forget how much money it was, £500, and send in a, a profile of myself just in booklet form. There was no videos. There was no DVDs back then, just in, in uh, you know, black and white form. And... Uh, a company sent this booklet over to the United States so uh, so coaches could get a look at it. Obviously, they wouldn't take you from this booklet. They would then have to come over to England to watch games. Again, very few games, I'm sure Glenn will attest to this, very few games would have been broadcast that you could see from England and broadcast in, in the United States. Nowadays, you can do it. Nowadays, Or, or, vice, are,
0: or vice versa, getting a chance it. to see the college that you're going to, you know, you
3: had no idea. I, I, absolutely. And look, so, so I did have that information that I wanted to, to come over. And then I did start growing. Then I did get, you know, caught up with my peers. And I, I was lucky enough to play for the England schoolboys under 18 team. So it wasn't the England... Pro under 18 team, it was only available to anybody in full-time education, but still the whole of England, still 60 million people in England. And we have lots of, you know, smarter, not you can always believe it when we talk about sportsmen or athletes or jocks, whatever you will. There are actually some smart, smart athletes out there. So when I was at the England schoolboy trials, it's the last 30. um, Glenn Myonek, who I'm I'm sure you guys know, um, who sadly passed since Glenn Myonek came over who was the assistant manager or assistant coach for Hartwick College. And he he watched my last 30 trials for the England schoolboys and offered me a a full scholarship on the spot. Pretty much as we were walking up the path towards our dorm room, he said, like what I see, to to myself and to Ian McIntyre, who is now the head coach of Syracuse University, who Glenn has had on his show on Sirius before uh, and has actually been on the broadcast for NYCFC with us as well. So Ian and I were pretty much offered full scholarships there and then. Um, And, you know, the rest is history in terms of what I did in in the United States, I guess.
0: I wonder along the way. So you came, you started playing professionally just about the time MLS was born, maybe a couple of years prior to that. Were there ever ever any uh, notions to to try for MLS? Were you ever scouted or did anything like that?
3: No, I think there was an MLS draft in 1996. So what I did, I was supposed to graduate in uh, June 1996. But because I did those extra two years of schooling back in England between 16 and 18, I got a bunch of credits. So I was able to speed along my degree course and I graduated at Christmas 1995. So I probably I took myself out of the draft by coming home and I gave myself between Christmas 95 and June 96 to become a professional footballer. If I hadn't made it, I was coming back to do my master's wherever that may have been, maybe be a coach, maybe be part of the MLS draft. But look at that inauguration of MLS in 1996, what were there? 10 teams. Players were getting paid $13,000 a year. Um, It just wasn't, even on my radar at all. And when I got back home, I was very lucky that I played for a good non-league team in the uh, called Grey's Athletic in Essex. Um, and I, sh- I think I played six games for them. And within two months, I'd signed professionally for Wickham Wanderers. So I came back at, I think I came back to England December tw- 21st, 1995. And I'd signed professionally by February the 21st, 1996 obviously that's down to my ability but also down to a lot of luck glenn there's there's lots of players who are very very good playing in non-league football i just happened to be playing in a league in essex which is very close to london where we had scouts at every single game and i know glenn you i'm sure you read the statistics out back then i could actually score goals i scored four goals in six games (laughs) and that led me to being watched more thoroughly i was playing as a, a central midfielder an attacking midfielder and uh, Wickham were the first team to offer me a trial. I went on trial, scored a goal and assist in the first game. I played for them, their reserve team. And, and as I said, that's history. That's how my pro career started.
2: Let me ask you this. So you were at Millwall, right? Uh, started, what was it, in 2000? And you stayed there for six years. So you were voted player of the year, right? And you were promoted to Division One as champions of the 2000-2001 season, right? Yeah. So you started out really well in the 2001, 2000 season, 2002 season, but then you sustained a concussion. Okay. Do you blame the concussion for having accepted a role as color commentator with <laughs> New York city to work with Glenn exclusively? Do you no, blame it, that?
3: It wasn't the initial concussion that forced me to work with Glenn. It was the secondary concussion that came after. That. So yeah, I was off, unfortunately, I was out for about three months and, we're joking about this. We also, and I know you know, Roberto, concussions yeah. are serious, serious issue. But yes, I must have. To, I have to admit that. Yeah, the last loss of brain cells has forced me into this work.
0: <laughs> well, I think it's a good time just to quickly bring up. So Shane is our producer. Shane, that put that caricature up of Maddie and I working together. I, uh, a local artist here in Jersey did this. Yeah. How good is that? <laughs> that is awesome. It's and I,
3: on, not for certain.
0: And the strokes, I mean, that's perfect. Jersey strong, that's perfect. I don't know how yeah. the New Yorkers will receive that, but uh, anyway. All right, get rid of that. got hold go on. Back. Give
2: give give Gina some credit for crying out loud. All right, put it back up. Put put it back up. Hold on, because this is brilliant. It's Gina, uh, Gina Mancino. There and There you go. Uh, awesome. And
0: she uh, and I, I have thrown some other work her way too. So we'll hopefully, uh, yeah. She she does uh, great work and. I didn't give her much. Uh, I just gave her a, a picture, and she put the headsets and did the rest. How so. much did,
2: she have, did you have to pay her to slim you down as much as she did? Oh, come on. I, I, look at me. <laughs> I, I am, Glenn. That's why I'm saying it.
0: <laughs> hey, I'm on my special high-sugar diet now, man. I'm, I'm eating a lot less. Yeah, and drink
2: well, We're looking forward to seeing the new you, yeah, okay. and then you'll be shocked when you see the new me. So, all right. <laughs> well,
0: let's get back to to Millwall, Maddie. And um well, I, I do. I want to ask you. You have to give us like a a scene setter for this one game in particular. I mean, there were and and I would like to ask you outside of this game what your memories of Millwall are because you were you know you're a you're a, a really, really highly regarded figure in that club. And uh, you became really popular there. And uh, But you played Manchester United in the FA Cup final. And uh, show this picture, Shane. So this is Manchester United with a, a very young Cristiano Ronaldo. And there you are, a um, little screenshot off the uh, – you can go on YouTube and watch this game. It's the – what year is it, 2001? 2004. 2004. That's right, 2004.
2: You're not even looking at him. You're ignoring him totally. I see. Yeah. that. you focus.
3: Yeah, That's why. It's it awesome.
2: Now Ronaldo did score a headed goal.
0: I hope you weren't the one marking him on that. And, yeah. uh, and then Ruud van Nistelrooy had a paragol. I guess one for the penalty spot. But it was three nil the final. But what are your? You know, you have to look back fondly at that, even though it was a loss and it didn't go as well as you would have liked.
3: Yeah. Look. I look back on it fondly now it's twenty years, you know, in the rear view mirror. Um, it's taken me a long time to get accustomed to not admitting that it happened, because it's a wonderful thing that it happened, but but the loss and admitting that I could enjoy the occasion, can I say? I didn't enjoy the game, obviously, because we lost three 0 but enjoying the occasion and being able to look back on it fondly and you know, show my kids a kids the game and realised that there's very few people in the world, probably I think about 250 people in the world who have captained their team at an FA Cup final. So whether we lost or not, I I found it very hard to appreciate the nature of the game and and how lucky I was to be a captain. Whereas previously I've always said it's only the semi-final that I care about because we won the semi-final. We beat Sunderland at Old Trafford. Uh, Old Trafford obviously the home of Man United, but it was a neutral venue for the semi-finals back then. Um, And so we won that. And I've always thought of that as my favourite game because we won. But I think I'm doing myself a a disservice and and the the manner of the game and the magnitude of the game as well. But it's taken a couple of decades and um, that's truthful. It's taken me this long to really recognise what a wonderful achievement it was
2: it's an amazing achievement i mean just i mean just just i'm thinking about this as you're talking about it and i mean obviously you were the, the a huge underdog in that game and uh the fact that you were able to go there and it's a full stadium it's the fa cup final i mean that is an amazing achievement that, that that your team is able to get there uh i mean i i can only think of positives yes i i understand you wind up losing the game but I mean, just being there is just an amazing accomplishment. And having captained that team, I mean, that's admirable.
3: Yeah, look, as an athlete, though, everything's about winning. It doesn't matter about the situation, how many fans are there. It doesn't matter that you're playing Man United. And yes, of course, they're better than you. We were also not only the underdogs, but we were undermanned as well. I was lucky enough to be captain that day because our captain snapped his leg in the semi-final, So we were... Not only underdogs because we were a lower league team, championship team as a opposed to Premier League. We we also had at least three injuries, I think a suspension as well. So it was not I don't want to say nine impossible for us to win, but it certainly would have been very very difficult against a team with you know Tim Howard in goal, with Roy Keane playing, with Paul skulls playing, with Ryan Giggs playing, with Van Nistelrooy, Ronaldo. I can't list any more, but I think that's enough. They probably could have played against us anyway.
2: You mentioned Tim Howard and uh, Casey Keller famously played for Mm -hmm. Millwall, and he had some amazing stories about the fans there. Give us one from your perspective of something that was crazy that the the fans would do, because I know that they're a very, I'll say this politely, intimidating bunch.
3: Yeah, look. I've got one story that shows that paints fans in a bad light because I feel at times you have to do that. And that's fans anywhere around the world. But also before I go there, I will start with I met the most wonderful people at Millwall. I really did. And I know that they have this image of, of being hardcore and I know there's this, no one likes us. We don't care image, but that's partly where, Millwall is in terms of in Bermondsey and a very working class area in London. And they've always been the underdog, I guess, in a way. But that I, I met some of the, the best people working behind the scenes and fans. I've met at least one Mac Millwall fan who, who Glenn knows, Pat Brennan, who uh, Glenn has worked with his son, Brian, on Sirius. And I met him just through Twitter and... Uh, in Hell's Kitchen, probably about 15 years ago now. We've stayed friends ever since. And it's stories like that. The, the fans, they really are, and I know a bit of a cliche, Salt of the Earth characters. They're, they're, they're truly wonderful. And any time I go back to Millwall, uh, I get not, it's not just about free tickets, but I can phone up and get free tickets. Just the other day at Christmas, I, I sent my eldest daughter and my eldest son to go to Millwall, and they were looked after. I wasn't even there. They just had to turn up say who they were, their names were on the guest list and and they got in. And that's not just about freebies. I'm talking about the fact that I'm lucky to have the respect of of the fans and people behind the scenes at Millwall. So let's start out with that. That is the best thing about Millwall fans. You won't hear that enough as well. Once you're in that clique, if you will, once you're in that circle of trust with Millwall fans, you're, you're almost never forgotten. And let's not forget, I'm a player who left Millwall and went to Crystal Palace, one of their arch rivals. And yet still, granted, some fans don't look on that particularly fond- fondly and understand why, but most fans have really treated me in- incredibly well. Um, on the flip side, I'm sure something that you can go on YouTube or go online and see is when we lost out to to Birmingham City at the Den... Um, it was the game where you could get promoted to the Premier League. Actually, it's the semi-finals before going to the next game where you can get promoted to the, to the Premier League. Uh, and we lost to Birmingham, I think, in, in injury time. And Glenn will be able to tell us that, that Stern John was the, the goal scorer for, um, for Birmingham City, who I then actually went on and played with, I think, for uh, for Crystal Palace. But yeah, we lost that game and we were then held within the stadium. That's both both sets of players and many fans because pretty much the local neighbourhood got burnt down that night by, by the Mill fans, and I was I was left in the ground with my family, with, with my kids, until like 2, 3 in the morning. So it would be remiss of me not to say that there were bad things that happened, uh, you know, at the hands of Millwall fans, but also it's very much overlooked at the very good things that happened. So I'll end on a good note. Uh, very rarely is it mentioned how much good work Millwall fans do for charity, for hospitable causes, especially for for the British Army as well. They're very much a team or a bunch of fans who will get get behind the country in a a patriotic manner and in a good sense, not in a bad sense, I mean, in a good sense. Um, And so, yeah, every single day, really, that I had at Millwall, I I looked on very fondly.
0: One final uh, note about uh, your playing career. Is a Crystal Palace. You worked under a number of managers over the years, obviously, yeah. but Neil Warnock to me is the most intriguing uh, because uh, he's a bit of a polarizing figure. When you when you hear about it, the uh, the modern managers uh, feel like you know Neil would never change and do any of this analytic stuff, and he would like nah, throw that to the side. We don't need that. Uh, but uh, tell us about your experience with Neil Warnock.
3: So, so talking about old school, let's just start with I think it's only Neil Warnock and Sir Alex Ferguson who have been allowed to manage in the Premier League without having their pro licence or working their way to the, towards the pro licence. Because they're so old school, because so old or elderly as well, let's suppose the pro <laughs> licence wasn't even around when they were growing up. So they had special dispensation to not even be working towards it. So he is old school. He is very old school and he's... He's happy to admit it as well. I remember his team talk the first day he showed up at Crystal Palace. um, The chairman introduced him, obviously. And then Neil said that the gaffer, as we would call him then, the gaffer said, go and put your boots and your shin pads on and meet me out there on the pitch. And nobody ever wore shin pads in training sessions. So everyone's looking around and going, oh, my goodness, what's going on here? So we went out to the to the centre of the pitch. He brought the goals up about 30 yards and the pitch was probably about 50, 60 yards long and probably about 30, 40 yards wide, but it was 11 v 11, so very compact. <laughs> the goalkeepers had to throw the ball into the centre forward and it was pretty much survival of the fittest. Anybody who watches WWE, it's like the Royal Rumble and that's yeah. what he wanted. He very much wanted that. He wanted to see... Who would sink or swim in a very tight knit environment when everybody was kicking the um the proverbial out of each other? And, and that's the type of manager he was. Then at the end of the session, he said, and most people were battered and bruised. He said, and he <laughs> mis- admitted this as well. He said, "I'm not really somebody who knows a great deal about tactics." He said, "That's for these guys," and pointed to his assistant managers i'm all about you know so i'm and i'm paraphrasing now but it's i'm about psychology and man management and you will all love playing for me more than you've liked playing for any manager ever anywhere around the world and we had a number of we had belgian players we had french players we had australian players uh i i think we had at least one at least one or two aussies yeah so we had many many players from many many different cultures and i think most players will admit they like working for Neil Warner because he would look after you as a a footballer and as an individual as well. And he knew how to treat people. He would always shout at the people he knew he could shout at. So there was a group of us. It was me, Danny Butterfield, um, Clint Hill, um, Sean Derry, who he knew he could shout at us because we had the ability to take that on board. So even if Danny Butterfield had scored a hat-trick, uh, you know, before half-time, he got shouted at because Neil Wallach knew he could handle it. And at least one of the players, and I'll say it, I don't mind saying, Darren Ambrose was a, a, needed a little more hugs and kisses, if if you will, and an arm round him, a metaphorical and literal arm round him. So, you know, Darren could have the worst game in the world, could have picked up a yellow card, not touched the ball all game, and Neil Warlock would come in at half-time, clap and say, you're the best player in the world. That's why I love you, Darren, you're the best player. It's all, and I'm I'm sure I'm over elaborating a bit, but he had the ability to work out who he could treat and how he could treat each individual person, and I think that goes for any line of work, certainly for any sport, anyway, any team sport, that's honest.
0: And you know, you and uh, Maxime Chano have that in common. You both played for Neil Warnock. I I think Maxime played for him at Sheffield United.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah. So uh, there you go. And now, uh, now maybe maybe you could become a coach at uh, Maxime's uh, little academy, La Fabrique, you know, uh, in, in in Brooklyn.
2: Well, Maddie's he's going to uh, have to dress better. For sure, he's <laughs> going to have to dress better. Well, uh, we've we Chano is a fashion plate without a doubt. Uh, Maddie uh, likes to be comfortable. Let, let me put it that way.
3: <laughs> very well put, Roberto. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right.
0: Well, Matt, uh, Maddie. It's, uh, that was wonderful. And uh, and uh, I know, uh, Roberto, I'm sure we both learned uh, quite a bit there uh, about our colleague and friend, uh, Maddie Lawrence. Why don't you hang out for these next two stories and kicking it around? Uh, and one uh, involves Girona and Man City. Now, interesting, they're both city football group clubs. So Mark Ogden from ESPN wrote this story. And I was like, whoa, I didn't know this. And under the current guidelines, okay, because they're owned by the same group. If Girona wins La Liga, which is certainly a possibility, and Manchester City finishes in the number two or three position in the EPL, Man City would not play in Champions League next year because you can't – if they won uh, uh, the uh, Premier League, Man City, then, yeah, the winner goes no matter what. But if they finish second or or below, they wouldn't be able to go under the current guidelines. And the quote from Mark Ogden, if Girona win La Liga and City fail to retain their Premier League title, it could be the catalyst for significant changes in the rules and regulations governing multi-club ownership. Pretty interesting, huh?
3: Yeah, it is. Look, uh, and it's only normally in the U.S. that you see teams tanking because they want a higher draft pick. Do you think that there may be a team tanking in Girona (laughs) if so they can't win? I'm sure it won't. And I'm joking slightly. I didn't know that this was a rule. Um, I I thought it was a rule that if the same ownership um, group owned a team or owns the majority of them, I didn't think that both of them could play within the same competition. I must admit, but I didn't realise they could still both qualify. If they both win the league, they're both allowed to play. I'm, I'm surprised at that, I must admit
2: yeah I'm, well, I'm wondering that if if that happens if or it's close to happening that if uh the city group doesn't sell their share of the team to because they don't own the whole team i think they own less than 50 percent so uh i'd be i would think that they would sell their other 50 percent one way or the other so that wouldn't happen
0: and an interesting side note per guardiola pep's brother is the chairman of girona then Pep, of course, the uh, manager at Man City. All right, one other story, uh, and I find this – this to me, this was the story of the week, guys, is that there's a match in Belgium that is going to be replayed because of VAR error. Did you guys see this? I no. did, Jeff. Yeah. I
2: did.
0: So Gank appealed uh, that the rules were misapplied and they should have been able to do redo a penalty – saved by Kasper Schmeichel of Anderlecht, as both teams encroached on the penalty. And the rule clearly states if both teams encroach, whether the kick is made or saved or hits the whatever, it has to be retaken. And it was not. And therefore, Gank appeal, I think the game ended in a draw, and the game is going to be replayed because of VAR error. I, I just, that is... Could that be precedent setting? That's what I'm thinking, you know?
2: I like it. I like it. I'm I'm in favor, Obviously, with a crowded schedule, that's a, uh, you know, it becomes difficult. But I think that that's the right outcome. I think that that's the right thing to do.
3: Well, the trouble is with the precedent setting, and we could end up with, with lots of games being replayed. I think for something that obvious – I don't see the problem apart from just the stacking up of games, because even with VR, we've seen around the world that there's been more than just that occasion where VAR hasn't been used properly. But I guess it's just the fact that the the laws weren't applied correctly in this manner.
0: One other thing uh, folks should know about Matty is he, he does the broadcast for a lot of Argentinian top tier football And before we depart, Matty, I wanted to see, uh, look, some reports say that this is pending, the signing of 19-year-old winger Augustine Ojeda uh, from uh, Rossing Club. Um, You've seen him play. Can you give us a bit of a scout and maybe we'll get something more thorough from you if it actually happens, but what do you think?
3: Look, look, first and foremost, I'd like it known that he's exactly three decades younger than me. He's got exactly the same birthday. June the 19th, 2004. I'm June the 19th, 1974. So let's get that out of the way first. He's exactly three decades younger than me. But I couldn't even, honestly, Glenn, I've worked, last year, 2023, I worked 122 Argentine games. 2022, I worked about 120 Argentine games. This, this time, so far in 2024, I've probably worked about 15. So that's nigh on 250 games. And I can't give you a scouting report. I know that's sitting on the fence. He's played so little. I've worked numerous Racing games. I worked the Racing game last night, as uh, Roberto said. Racing won 3-0 against Tigre. My assumption is he wasn't on the bench because this move is that imminent. He may not even have been in Argentina. And this is just me guessing. I'm not... I'm not saying this has happened. I'm not saying he's going to sign. But look, Roberto read out the statistics. He still has only just played over 1,000 minutes of football, which is really 10, 11 games at most if he plays all 90 minutes or 12, 13. So, yeah, I don't know enough about him to offer up a good scouting report. I will go back and have a look. But at most, I will have seen him in in fits and starts coming off the bench. And I just don't know enough about him. I saw way more of Julian Fernandez. Than I have done of Augustine A uh, Hader, so uh, okay. yeah, I was happy to give a scouting report for There's not so much with A Hader. All
0: right. Well, finally, 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 at the top of the broadcast, we talked about the importance of winning uh, in preseason. Got comments from uh, Nick Cushing and Keaton Parks, and I asked you before the uh, before this podcast last week, Maddie, about it because I knew it was going to come up. And uh, what was your response to that? Because I thought it was it was brilliant.
3: Yeah, certainly I've been in teams where we won every game of pre-season and we got relegated. And then I've been in teams that lost every game of pre-season and we won the championship or we got promoted. So it's not imperative that you win games of football, but it does depend. I think you guys were alluding to it. It does depend which team it is and who's within that team. This is a team, we're talking about NYCFC, who only won 26% of their games in MLS last season. So, for me, going into the season now, I think it's important that they learn how to score goals and they learn how to win games of football. I don't mean learn. They know how to, but get back used to it. These behind-closed-doors friendlies, that, they're anomalies. But the closer we get to this regular season starting, I said to you, Glenn, these, the, the two behind-closed-doors, I'd play 30 minutes in those when I was a pro. Then the next game, you want to play 45. Then the next one, 60. Then the next one, 75. The last game of pre-season, I would always want to play 90 minutes. Granted, I never wanted to get injured, of course, but I'd want to play right. 90 minutes and I'd want to win the game, of course. You want to win that game in your last game before going into the season. Are the results per se important? Of course not. I, 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 show, I could show you the Millwall team probably that where we got promoted, or I think we got promoted twice, but certainly we didn't do very well in pre-season. But we knew within our dressing room that we had a bunch of leaders and we had a real nucleus of a very strong, mentally tough team. And I'm not sure we saw that with NYCFC during 2023.
2: Let me ask you this. Is five preseason games enough to get, regu- to get ready for the regular season? I know that it's just pretty much the same for everybody. But is five preseason games
3: enough? So, certainly, I would play... Six or seven games, and as I say, it would be. A I think 30. the accurate
0: number. If I could interrupt, for, it is six because you're forgetting the closed door against Austin on February seventeenth. So there's three Coachella. Oh, Austin, okay. And they played two, so it will be I six. It,
3: I think it depends on on each individual player. As I say, I would like to do. I would have done one thirty in one game, one thirty in another, then a forty five, then a sixty, then a seventy five, then a ninety. So however many that is, six or seven would be what I would want to do. But again, you wouldn't play anywhere near six or seven, 90 minutes. You'd only be playing a a microcosm of some of the games, the early ones. And we did the same. We would have behind closed doors friendlies for maybe our first one or two games. That's for sure. In preseason.
0: Well, great stuff, gentlemen. Uh, part two of our series of get to know your commentators is going to be next week. Ariel Houdis, He'll be in the hot seat next week. So we learn about, uh, his upbringing and he's, he's uh, Ariel. I can't wait to talk to him and get some, uh, some of his uh, South American takes uh, uh, along the way, but Maddie, wonderful to see you, Roberto, you as well. And that's going to do it for us. So for Maddie Lawrence and Roberto Abramowitz, I'm Glenn Crooks, and this has been NYCFC views.
1: And that's a wrap. Hope you don't miss us too much until next time. Follow the Sick Podcast NYCFC
2: Views on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts.